0: Love Talk Radio.
1: to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Catherine, and I'm joined tonight by my co-hosts, Jean and Amanda. Hi, ladies. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Glad to hear you. So as we were brainstorming new show ideas, we talked about how helpful it is to hear other people's recovery stories. And I know when I first got sober, the realization that there were other women just like me who had the same experiences, thoughts, feelings, that was just revolutionary. And it went a long way with cutting through my shame so I could focus on getting sober. And I even was thinking that just the experience of doing this show and talking with you, Amanda and Jean, and our wonderful guests, you know, it always inspires me. I know that I'm not alone. I learned how to live a sober life free from the obsession with alcohol and I just couldn't do that without other people in recovery. So in that spirit, we thought we would kind of get down to basics and try out a show format where a guest shares his or her story in a loose interview format and then introduces a topic for discussion. So this is our first go with this particular structure. So you know we'll really appreciate your feedback, listeners, as always. Um, and tonight's speaker meeting guest is Joe, who has been a guest on the show before. Most recently, I think, was the gratitude episode in November. And Joe has been a real inspiration for my recovery, and I feel honored to have her on the show. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, ladies. Great to be here. I'm, I'm so jo- glad to have you. So I think, you know, we'll just take this in a little bit of a dialogue format. We've got some questions prepped, but we can kind of see where the conversation takes us. I'm sure we'll all be jumping in with thoughts and reactions. Um, so let's just start off, you know, what were some of your earliest experiences like with alcohol?
2: Well, um Maybe maybe even before I share that, um, I, I should just say that I am a, I am an alcoholic and I'm sober alcoholic in recovery, um, and I've I've been sober since December 6, um, 2010. So it's a little around three and a half years of sobriety. Um, so I just kind of wanted to start out by saying that. Um, I've had an opportunity that, you know, in that time to reflect back on my story. And one of the things when I share my story in recovery meetings or wherever that I always like to acknowledge first is that, you know, this is my story as I see it today. It's not the story that I, you know, would have told a couple of years ago, and it's probably not the same story that I would tell a couple of years from now, you know what I mean? So one of the yeah. things about recover recovery is that more is constantly being revealed. So it's, you know, with that in mind, it's my, you know, this is how I'm filtering.
0: Uh,
2: this is how my story is filtered through my experience today as a sober person. I'm at this point in my journey and, um, and, and, uh, What my hope is in sharing my story today is that it will touch somebody and and help them reflect on their own story, you know, because storytelling is so, I think, fundamental to recovery. Um, So, but to answer your question, um, going back to the beginning, what were some of my earliest experiences like with alcohol? Well, I, I grew up with a lot of um, alcohol around me. Um, there was a lot of heavy drinking in my family. Um, it was definitely the norm in my family, um, drinking. Um, I, had, I, I remember, you know, having the experience as a little girl of feeling powerless over alcohol before I even drank it. Um, because it was something that most of the adults did. I mean, they definitely seemed to enjoy it. And when they were drinking, the vibe in the household was always a lot more relaxed. And, of course, I enjoyed that. Um, you know, the, the adults, when they were drinking, always seemed a little more unpredictable, Um you know, I didn't like their their breath or the glazed-over look in their eyes or their seeming lack of interest in me. But you know, all of that was a bit unnerving. But ultimately, I think I enjoyed the relaxed atmosphere of drinking, and it was definitely something I can definitely say I was looking forward to to drinking myself. Um, my first actual drunk was when I was 14 years old. I um my my Friends' parents were going out of town, and we left her alone for the weekend in the house, and so, of course, we decided to have a party, and I went into my parents' liquor cabinet, and I took, you know, without regard for whatever it was, I just took a couple inches Um, or whatever I thought I could get away with off of, you know, all of the bottles. So it was like (laughs) sake and (laughs) rum and tequila and whiskey and God knows what else, you know, things that had been probably gathered in the back of the liquor cabinet for years. And I just kind of put it all into one container, you know, because I had to do it quickly. Yeah, so um, that just kind of was the basis of my party beverage that night. And um, that my very first drunk, I got completely wasted. And, um, you know, I I don't remember a ton of it. Um, I remember kind of wandering around the party, um, which was definitely foreshadowing of what a lot of my drinking was like in years to come, that kind of (laughs) sense of wandering around (laughs) the party. Um, And at some point in the night, uh, that first drunk, I did blackouts. And um, some people from my – some boys from my school wrote on my arms and on my face with um, permanent marker, you know, things that I probably can't say on the radio. Um, so right from the beginning, um, you know, it was fun, but fun with, with with problems, fun with consequences. And I remember, you know, trying to wash that off and going to the, going to school, um, you know, on Monday and kind of facing that shame. But it certainly wasn't, you know – even going through that experience, it certainly wasn't a deterrent to drinking. I mean, I really had the sense that I was just getting started, and I couldn't wait to do it again. And, um, and, you know, a lot of my drinking through my teens was just, you know, mimicked that early experience of just kind of going, getting as drunk as possible, you know, wandering around the party when one group of friends wanted to stop or had to go or whatever, going to find another group that would continue on and that sort of thing. Definitely, um, you know, a lot of poor choices in my early drinking, um, leading myself and and friends into dangerous situations, promiscuity, and so forth. Something that I'm
1: just sort of noticing here is that as you're, as you're talking, this is something that I've found really fascinating in recovery, this kind of knowing laughter that Mm -hmm. comes up when people are sharing their stories. And if, if somebody out there is listening and you haven't had a conversation yet with somebody else in recovery, that laughter might seem sort of um, like it's coming from a different place. And I'm always (laughs) you know what I mean? And like, yeah, why are people laughing? Like, oh my God. Right. But (laughs) like, I, I know, I find it very moving actually that, you know, there's, I've always noticed this kind of, knowing laughter that comes with a conversation with a bunch of people in recovery because we're all like oh yeah you know maybe I don't have the permanent marker story but I sure know the feeling of the wandering or I sure know the feeling of unpredictability and powerlessness or or whatever so
0: that was something that struck me
2: that's so true that's a
0: good point because go ahead Oh, this is Amanda. I was just going to say, no, that that's a really good thing to bring up because you know I remember going to my first meeting and being like, why are people laughing? Like this is that's not funny, and because it would be like some really serious stories, but it, but it is. It's that knowing laughter, or that it's the um, yeah, that me too. And I can and I can tell you, Joe, that just listening to what you've shared so far, <laughs> me too for all of that. <laughs> Um. Yeah, and I'm
2: telling, you know what, ladies? I'm telling my story with a smile on my face because at this point, you know, it's it's nothing I'm I'm hiding or ashamed over. I mean, these stories, you know, I, and there are many more. I mean, this was just the beginning, but you know, these stories are part of what what allows me to be of service to other people now. You know, this mm-hmm. has become the base, the basis and the foundation of my life is some of these stories. So. I don't really have any of that shame anymore. I tell them with a smile on my face and I enjoy the laughter because it's something we bond over, you know, and recover together. Definitely. So, you
1: know, you've you've kind of outlined some of the feelings that were underneath the the drinking. You you mentioned the feeling of powerlessness um, just early on because of the environment that you were in and the people you were around. And then sort of that Fun. I've heard this said that drinking starts out fun, then it's fun with consequences, and then it's just consequences. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And when and when you said that the consequences weren't a deterrent, I just it was like my whole drinking career just flashed before my eyes of like how many possible deterrents could have been thrown up in my face, and I just didn't pay attention to. So many of them are really yeah. any of them, um, but you know, what were some of the feelings kind of underneath your your drinking? And I'm sure that evolved as well
2: over time. Definitely, I think that um, I think that's a great question. Of course, I don't think when we're drinking, most of us are thinking about what are the feelings underneath of my drinking. You know, I think when I was mm-hmm. drinking, I thought I just like to drink. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. I didn't even
2: have You know, I just thought, well, what do you mean feelings? I mean, this is what I do. I drink. Um, And because I like it. But... Uh, you know, and so this is the benefit of looking back uh, through sober eyes um, at my story and where I'm at this point, when I think about the earlier years um, and the feelings that were underneath my drinking, I think, um, well, obviously there was a bit of, you know, age and experimentation going on. But also I think I just, I loved, well, I loved the effect of alcohol. And I loved that it, it gave me an excuse to act on the outside the way that I felt on the inside. Mm. Um, you know, it, gave me, it yes. gave me the permission to be a little crazy. And being, when I would get drunk when I was a young person, to be a little crazy was fun and funny. And, you know, I got some... You know some people responded well to it and we had a great time and it, it, you know all that stuff that was going on all that, those unprocessed feelings and thoughts and all the physical changes you're going through as a teenager it just allowed me it was an outlet for all of that um, it was, you know it was fun to get drunk and act crazy and like any teenager you know I, I had a lot going on I needed to, I needed, I didn't, and I didn't have really other good outlets and so it became my
1: out. This is Catherine. Is it is it problematic that I I don't even have the excuse that I was a teenager because I didn't start drinking until my twenties? <laughs> <So. laughs> and, and yet, and yet, um, I could have I could have said that myself. That that's really well put. That it was an excuse to be a little crazy and act how I felt on the inside while I was trying to project
2: the perfect image. All the rest of the time. Exactly. Well, and as I got older into adulthood, in my 20s and 30s, um, you know, I began to, I mean, it was no longer, once I was older and, you know, had graduated college and was in a, you know, professional career and had a marriage and children, it was no longer appropriate to act as crazy as I used to act, you know, when drinking with friends, and so, later as an adult, I think that was when I began to use alcohol to cope with the stresses of adult life, you know, and it was just there, it it actually, alcohol and adult life to me were synonyms, you know, alcohol was what I brought with me through all aspects of adult life, from the celebrations to, um, you know, the coming home from work, the happy hour, the moving, you know, any, all the big events. You know, alcohol was there with me. And, um, you know, it became a daily, it became a big part of my daily life, the ritual of um, of coming home from work and opening a bottle of wine or pouring a cocktail or whatever it was.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: I think it just became, you know, my main vice for, for coping with life at a certain point.
1: Yeah. But, and so when did you start seeing um red flags
2: what was that like well i would say that you know um having alcoholism in my family i honestly you know saw them from the beginning i was no i wasn't ignorant to the fact that you know i could see that i liked drinking a little more than a lot of my friends you know and i could see that drinking was felt like it was more of a priority for me than other people you know um and certainly when i started to you know do things like preload before the party and then come home and drink some more after the party um you know bring a little extra in my purse or or things like that you know those were i guess you could say red flags but i i wasn't paying attention <laughs> you know i had so i, <laughs> I had so many um I had so many, you know, so many red flags, honestly, looking back. I mean, I got pulled over once on my way home from work. I, I, you know, before I went home to the kids, I decided to stop at a bar um, and had a few drinks. And I got in my car, um, and I didn't turn on my headlights. uh, So I was just driving down the road without my headlights. I got pulled over a couple blocks from my house. And I think the cop knew I was drunk. He asked me if I'd had anything to drink, and I said no. Um, you know and I showed him my driver's license and he asked me you know based on my driver's license where was my home and I pointed up around the corner I was afraid to actually speak because I thought you know he could smell it or it would be exploring my words and he said okay ma'am have a nice night you know I had these mm-hmm. you know I got off you know basically uh, and that wasn't mm-hmm. the only time there was another time too that I, I got out of a DUI I you know so they yeah they were red flags but it wasn't I wasn't paying attention. I didn't care. Because for me, you know, I knew I was a problem drinker, but the, the thing was is I thought I could manage it, you know. I thought I had control over it, even though I knew I was an alcoholic, if that makes any sense. I thought I had mm-hmm. control over that.
0: Um, but Wait, I definitely um, had I-
2: experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Go ahead. Uh, this is Amanda. I was just gonna say, I think it's um, just really interesting to kind of point out, like there's some, you know, when you talk about getting pulled over, um, I mean that's a red flag that that's kind of obvious to everyone. But like the um, when you were talking about the preloading for the party, um, you know, and drinking when you got home and stuff like that, I know, like I've seen p- different people, you know, in our online group and stuff, you know, uh, or different people have shared you know, that they thought that was normal. I thought that was normal. Like a lot of, you know, did you think that was normal at all? You know, like just preloading. I thought everyone did that. It wasn't until I got sober and you know, actually hung out with some norm, like normal drinkers or social drinkers. That you know, I realized, well, not every. No, what do you mean? Not everyone's out on a mission to get like absolutely annihilated. I mean, right. well, exactly. and I,
1: This is this is Catherine. I I was thinking like Joe when you said, um, oh. You know, I kind of knew that I liked drinking more than my friends. Like, my clever solution to that was, like, to surround myself with other probably active alcoholics. Like,
0: then I really
1: was, you know, like, in the mix with lots of people who were doing the same thing. But then my perception just became so skewed. So to, to Amanda's point, like, then I just thought that everybody was doing it. Like, I was at an event recently where in in the past I would have just been, like, you know, off to the races. And I would have really, really thought that everybody else was doing it, too. And, like, this time no one was drinking, not with any amount of, you know, speed the way I would have been. Um, So my perception was just totally skewed on that. Oh, definitely. I
2: totally relate to that. I I had no idea that other people it wasn't such a priority for other people as it was for me. I mean I, I mean I knew I liked it, but I was just you know, honestly I was just doing what I had to do. I was taking care of my mm-hmm. needs, you know, and that included preloading, that included sometimes sneaking a drink at the bar on my way back to the table from the bathroom. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it included all of those <laughs> things because that's mm-hmm. a, that's what I needed to do. You know, sometimes you know there were times when my friend, my girlfriend, would get up and go to the bathroom, and I would drink off of her drink. You know, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, thinking consciously about those things. I was just doing what I had to do to try to keep my buzz. So,
3: so this is definitely. This is Jean. I have a question for you. You were you were talking about um, just dodging a, a DUI, but what, did a did a bell ring for you at all, even just that? To be driving drunk or to be, to be driving even close to the limit, like, oh, um, for yeah. me, I kind well, of, that was always a red flag. In fact, it was a pain in the butt for me because to drink before I went out, which I needed to survive an event, but I couldn't drink enough that it would, you know, I could only have one because I'd have to drive there and I couldn't drink very much when I was there, but it was when I got home that I really lit in because I never wanted to drive drunk. So did that. Did that bother you, like knowing that about yourself that you were that you could have got a DUI, that you deserved a DUI? Oh yeah, I I,
2: um, I you know every time I drunk drove, which was you know dozens. I mean I can't even tell you how many times I've drunk drove, but every time I you know would swear it off the next day. Boy, I really dodged a bullet. Oh my God, I'm never going to do that again. You know, and I, um, wh- you know, I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with um, some of Robin Williams' comedy, but one of the things he says that I so related to when he was talking about his alcoholism, he says, "We violate our standards faster than we can lower them." Uh-huh. That, Absolutely, that was exactly the way it was for me. I mean, yes, of course, of course. I mean, I was mortified by my own behavior with the drinking and driving, and of and every time I thought I would never do it again. But what's so um, what happens is you just start to drink, and it 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 has this way of altering your judgment <laughs> and thinking. You know, <laughs> start to <laughs> you start to think that you know you overreacted, or you know your own limit. You know, you think like. Oh, I know, I know, I know how far I can go before I have to, you know, cut it off and drive home or whatever. Uh, and it was that way, you know, all throughout of the, the drinking, that same thing of violating my standards faster than I could w- lower them. Because of course there were times when I, you know, of course I, you know, I didn't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to, um, you know, go home with a stranger tonight. But of course, you know, there were a lot of times I did end up doing that kind of behavior. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So the, they and were
1: outside. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I want to get to this kind of juxtaposition between what your life looked like on the outside versus how you felt on the inside. Sort of that, you know, stand violating your standards. But I just, I want to go back to what you said. This is so powerful. I thought I could manage it, and yeah. that, that delusion was so powerfully ingrained in me um that i think was it maybe the root of of the justification thought process or if it can even be called a thought process but i was full of justifications and reasons that this is okay and that this is necessary Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and maybe at the root of that was this idea that i thought i could manage it um i don't know can you talk a little
2: bit about that well, I think that that was um, that I thought I could manage. It was, you know, that was my worldview with drinking. I mean, both with that apply. That it certainly applies to the drinking itself, but also just my whole way of approaching my life. Um. I think for me, you know, control was just a big part of the way I viewed the world, um, and that mm-hmm. fit right into you know, my attitudes toward my alcoholism. I thought that I could control it. I thought I was in control of it, and I didn't think that I would have the consequences that other people had because I was in control of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and and, And that pervaded other areas of my life, too. I mean, I thought I was in control of everything. I had to be in control of everything. I was very sick into what I now see as a kind of illusion of control, um, but it took you know bottoming out and sobering up to begin to even think about those issues,
1: yeah, I don't know, Amanda or Jean, do you have any thoughts on this idea of feeling like you could control it?
3: Oh, for oh managing yeah, it was for me it was I mean. I think that goes hand-in-hand with anxiety, was that I really felt like I needed to control everything, and that's Mm -hmm. exhausting, and exhaustion requires relief, and I had one solution (laughs) for relief, and that Mm -hmm. was Pino Grigio. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, that, you know, that it just fueled itself. It really did, because then as I, I saw, oh, no, now I'm losing control of the thing that helped me control everything else. And um, that was a really hard, it, it was a really hard realization, I think. It, it was a it was a really heavy weight as I saw that starting to tip because I, I didn't know what I was going to do without, you know, this excellent arrangement that I had with my life where mm-hmm,
2: you
1: know, I ran mm-hmm. the world
3: all day and, and then um, used l- wine to put a brick on my head so that I could sleep, so I could run the world again tomorrow. I mean, how's the sun going to come up? Right. It's, it's my system (laughs) self-destructs. Did you feel that, Joe? Did you feel that kind of doom as you realized it was, the juxtaposition was, you know, tipping? Oh,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I managed to all the way through my drinking, um, you know, keep my life on the outside for the most part looking okay. I mean, I have a professional job and I'm a parent and I was married, although I did lose my my marriage to, to my alcoholism. Um, and that, I think, you know, was the beginning of it kind of coming apart at the seams, you know, not being able to maintain that um, control of my outward world, you know, when my when my marriage fell apart, um, but even still, when I think back, you know, when I there were many people in my life when I got sober and I told them that I had been an alcoholic, they were like, "We had no idea. I never would have suspected it."
0: Hmm. So um, this is not. This not is Amanda. I have a, people, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I just had a question about that because something I that, that I relate to a lot. Um did did when you you say you lost your marriage to your drinking, did you acknowledge that at the time or was it only after you got sober that you kind of said, "Oh boy, that that, that did definitely played a role?" Oh, yeah. And I say oh, that yeah. because for me, I didn't I didn't I I was I was like, "Oh, thank God that marriage is over," you know, like um but really, you know, looking <laughs> <Right>. back, <laughs> i'm not i I'm not hundred percent sure you know that, you know really what came first, but um you know chicken or egg you know the marriage falling apart or my drinking falling you know did the marriage fall apart because of my drinking or did was I drinking because the marriage was falling apart so I'm just curious on how you felt well um
2: i'm I'm glad you mentioned that because i i'm very i can tell you with certainty that it was only after I got sober that I saw saw it that way when I um I actually was the one who left the marriage and at the time um I was you know trying I, I had tried everything to sort of fix myself and feel better in my mind and that hadn't worked and so this was another this was another way I was trying to fix myself I thought I know this I know what it is it's this relationship that has destroyed me and that's what I what I have to do is just get out of this relationship you know and I Mm -hmm. made a lot lot of things in my drinking life like that oh I know what it is it's this job or it's this city that I live in I need to move and that's you know or I need to you know get have these hang out with more of these people or I need to start yoga or I need to lose a few pounds or I need to leave my husband I mean these are all kinds of the kinds of ways that I looked at my life you know, because I was looking for these external things to sort of change and fix me, change me and fix me. Anything and so but what, the
0: drinking. <laughs>
2: anything but the drinking. My God, that was like, that That would be really a drastic measure.
0: Now, <laughs> what
2: happened, though, was that when I left my marriage, um, it wasn't sh- but shortly after that, that I that I hit bottom and got sober because, it's, it, once I was away from him and out of that toxic relationship and on my own and I could see that, you know, my drinking was just getting worse and worse and my, you know, my spirit was just, it, it didn't, it hadn't fixed me. It was like, it was like even worse. Like I was out of the marriage. I was supposedly free and I was in like the worst prison of my life. That was when my life got really small. And, um, I think it was that I think that that was a moment of clarity for me was that leaving him didn't fix me um and here mm-hmm. I was, kind of at my darkest hour after that. Um,
1: so you know, what did then surrender feel like when you're feeling like your life had gotten small, that it was sort of spinning many things yeah. kind of spinning out of control so what did it feel like
2: finally to surrender well i you know in the in the days weeks months leading um up to that moment when i finally quit um you know i was trying all of this management this moderation of my drinking you know and mm-hmm. um I joined this um, I joined this online group um, that was about moderating alcohol and I was I was watching their posts, you know, the people were posting about units of alcohol and how many and oh last night, you know, last night I went a little beyond what I said I was going to go or, you know, I'm so proud of myself I was able to stick to my limit last night or whatever. And even as in my sort of drunkest hour and my most alcoholic thinking, I I just had a, some clarity with that, and I could see. I thought, God, these people are just obsessing even worse about alcohol. This this moderation is just like <laughs> yeah. it looked Even to me, it looks like painful, you know? Like what? God, when we can we throw in the towel already? And um, and I, I remember kinda, meeting
1: I I met a guy at a bar, by the way,
2: who. You know, we, we just started chatting
1: and, and he told me that he was trying this and, you know, part of me was like really intrigued, like that's what I need because I can't possibly be an alcoholic, but, you know, maybe what I need to do is just moderate. And I remember reading some of the literature and being like, well, they call <laughs> for a 30-day you know, abstinence period, and that's just not going to happen, and they call for, you know, however many units. But in my view, it was totally absurd. No, not to mention that, like, in a glass of wine is three ounces. Like, not in my world it isn't. Um, right. And I remember being like, oh. And then it was sort of like, you know, that little voice in the back of my head saying, you know, if you can't even do this. Maybe it's a little issue, but let's, yeah.
2: you just made me think of that story, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> but
0: definitely. let's set that voice right up
2: <laughs> right yeah right so so, what surrender looked like to me, you know was actually, I had someone in my life in my close inner circle who had who had recently gotten sober, and I could see that that person you know even as I was kind of spiraling down to the bottom, I could see this person who I knew really well, um, you know, just starting to get better. And it was somebody, you know, a former very close drinking buddy of mine. And um, I, you know, one night after I had had a lot to drink, it was actually, I, I had a lot to drink. It was sort of a hair of the dog thing. I was drinking all day at this, you know, event with friends and kids and stuff like that um, to recover from my prior night where I had really drank a lot out um, at a work event. And um, I drunk drove my kids home or buzz drove, whatever you want to call it. And uh, this was in my, the apartment that I was living in um, on, an, on a weekend that I had the kids um, put them to bed and I went to bed myself and I woke up at, you know, two in the morning, which was not unusual at that point to wake up with these mm-hmm. morning, you know, they are middle of the night or early morning kind of panic attacks, you know, where my heart would be racing and I would, you know, check my phone to see what texts I had sent and, you know, go panic and check on the kids and make sure they were okay because I couldn't remember, you know, putting them to bed or that kind of a thing. And, um, and I had one of those I had one of those nights, and um, I just picked up the phone and I called that friend of mine who was had at that point had five months of sobriety, and um, I talked to that person on the on the phone, and they said to me, "Do you think you have a problem with alcohol?" And this is like someone who I've been drinking with for like two decades. <laughs> I like, I don't <laughs> you know I don't have a problem with alcohol. You know, the question is, is I'm ready to give and, up? Um, and we just talked about it, and uh, there was no pressure coming from that person, no, you know, no proselytizing, no, like, more heavy moral trip or anything like that. Um, but what happened was, was I just kind of watched, like, as we talked about it at 2 in the morning, I just watched all my excuses kind of evaporate before my eyes. Like I could see all of them for what they were, which was just excuses, you know. Like, what about Christmas, or what about my my cousin who brews home beer? And stuff like that. You know, that, that's yeah. awesome, right? You know, you know. Um, I just watched it all kind of evaporate, and um, that's what surrender looked like for me. And and the next day um, was a Monday, and and I went and I walked into my first recovery group meeting. Um, and I, that was December 6th in 2010. So I've thankfully stayed sober this whole time.
3: Jill, this is Jean. I, I just like, have an ache in my heart as you talk about um, driving your kids home after you'd had too much to drink, and I think that's, that's one of those things that for, for us moms, that's one that, that really, I think, really hurts us when we look back and think that in any way we put our kids in danger. And, yeah. you know, as we talk about this now and look back on it and we speak about those those low-bottom things really factually sometimes because we have to accept the reality that they happened in order to move on from them. But I think it's important that we also note that, like, I'm sure you would throw yourself in front of a car with a drunk driver in it to prevent your kids from getting in that car now, right? Like, oh, definitely. I, without a question. When we, when we, yeah. when we look back at, at at how far we we were, I think it's really it, it, it's it's important to, to speak honestly about those things because you know we need to speak our truth, but I think it's also really important to to share how you view that now well look i mean honesty is at the root of my recovery.
2: I have to mm-hmm. be honest uh if i'm mm-hmm. if so i'm if I'm not being honest and i'm I'm kind of avoiding certain truths um because it would be convenient for my ego to avoid those truth, that's when mm-hmm. I'm setting myself up for another drink, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the core of my recovery has to be saying, look, I did this. Like, I did this, you know, re- reprehensible behavior. And thank God uh, we all survived it and that I didn't hurt anybody. Um, I think about that all the time. And, of course, I would, you know, I talked to my kids very frankly about alcoholism too you know and about getting in their cars with drunk people um, but you know we when we're drinking our there's, yeah, there's a lot of denial you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. going back to that going back to that thought thinking I could manage it and it took me a long time in recovery to admit that my drinking had affected my children because you know i thought well what what was the big deal you know i i mean aside from the drinking and driving which is an obvious example of it but um you know i had a job they had a roof over their head you know they had food they go to good schools we were act you know it all seemed fine when i was in it but in in retrospect you know and getting more and more sober and from the way i look at it today i can see how my drinking got in the way of me connecting with them you know, it's part of me kind of rushing them to bed at night so I could so I could drink or, you know, being unavailable in the morning because I was on hungover um, or also just having that attitude of, you know, that goes with a lot of alcoholic thinking of management and control and applying that attitude in my parenting, you know, um, which is not a great environment for kids to thrive. I mean, I've grown so much in sobriety.
1: Mm-hmm. And learning how to
2: parent is a big part of that, learning how to parent well and in accordance with my values, you know, because I always had really strong values. You know, I, I, it was just that as I drank, my behavior didn't line up with them anymore, mm-hmm. you know, like on a different track after a while. And then, of course, being ashamed of that, I had to drink more on top of it because I drank on the right. shame too. Right. You know, and I.
1: Well, and this is Catherine. And I. I think you know we hear, we hear from a lot of moms in particular, um, you know, who are concerned about their drinking, and and I, I, just, Jean, I really appreciate you talking about you know the importance of being honest about it, and one stumbling block that I think we hear from people is that some people struggle then to identify as an alcoholic. Because it's like, well, I'm a mom or I'm, you know, and I'm a good mom and I'm a career person and I do whatever. Um, All these things that we do and we're very capable. Um, You know, what, were you able, Joe, to kind of immediately identify as an alcoholic and sort of say that out loud
2: or... Mm -hmm. yeah I didn't I'm not I know that there are a lot of people who struggle with that term or identifying as that term honestly I it was a relief it was a relief to finally begin to say it out loud because I'd known it for so long um and yes I'm a mom and I'm a career person and I'm a good mom and I'm a good career person and I'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. um it wasn't um you know in my in my where I live in my area there's a lot of a lot of recovery and a lot of, you know, people who are moms and professionals and all of that who identify as alcoholics. And it just was, it really wasn't that hard for me. I appreciate how it is hard for some people, but um, because they feel a shame or a stigma associated with that, I honestly, for me, it was, it was just a relief to finally, to finally admit it and to get onto the business of, you know, doing something about it.
3: Yeah. this, this, this is Jean. And I think that really, that, um, comes when we connect with other people in recovery and see that, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not, you know, the pink unicorn here. I'm not a miraculous alcoholic. There's other people that are high-functioning and doing all these amazing things by day and struggling with this problem. And as long as we stay isolated, we can tell ourselves that we're the only people that understands what it's like. But once you connect with other alcohol, That's how I found that, that I, I so resisted that word uh, until I... Uh, until I was able to connect with other people and realize, oh, okay, you know what, these are my people. This is, this is um, a relief, as you said. Like it really, it really is a relief to, to see that. Yeah. Um, me too, right? Yeah. Talk about the power of me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And that that was this is Catherine. That was my experience too. That and you know I I surrendered and I sort of wrestled at first with the big bad A word. And then just on the topic of honesty, I kind of had to say, well, well, get over yourself. Like who who cares what you call it? You're not in control of this, sister. <laughs> like I just had to really say to myself that I think it, Joe, you said it so well. All of your excuses just started tumbling over one at a time. And I felt the same way. So it kind of, I took the position of what difference does it make what I call myself at first. And then as I started talking to people, as Jean says, I was like, Oh, wait a second. Yeah. Not only am I an alcoholic, like, you know, I want to be like Joe or Amanda or Jean. And I mean, these are women that I identify with. Um, mm-hmm. are these are, are men that I met in recovery that I identify with. Um, and so, wait a second, you know, they're A-OK by me, so why should I be any different? That was just my experience with that. So you kind of talked it's, about, you know, getting to the – go ahead.
3: Oh, the, I was. this is Jean. I was going to tell you uh, – Something funny real quick, just that I, as I was really resisting the term alcoholic, I, I wrote about it a bit on my blog, and someone commented, well, maybe you're not an alcoholic. And then I was really offended. I'm like, well, I'm <laughs> am. <laughs> I am. Yes, I call am. Oh, no. Hey, I want to control you, the label.
0: <laughs>
3: oh, that's probably <laughs> when <laughs> I realized, oh, actually, yeah, I am. Just don't not call me one. Just don't, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why
1: you know in in the recovery reading things like blogs and and recovery literature there's you know some of the recovery literature will even lay out you know these are the different kinds of alcoholics and like you know then you, you kind of end up finding at least one that looks just like you
0: <laughs> and yeah. it's hard
1: to kind of deny. Um. So Joe, you were saying like okay before you could get to the you wanted to get to the business of recovery. So yeah, you know, this is the good stuff. Like what does it look like today? Mm-hmm. What are some of the guiding principles and key activities that you use to stay sober today?
2: Mhm. Well, I I um you know, sobriety is it's it's a big part of my life. It's something that um I have to I build into my everyday um I mean, in the beginning, it was, you know, it was strongly suggested to me that I do something to support my recovery every day, Um, and I did it kind of like a chore. But at some point, you know, it became like what I wanted to do, and it became a huge part of my life is is nourishing and supporting my sobriety. So um, what I do... Um, One of the the guiding principles and key activities are that, you know, I definitely attend um, recovery meetings. That's a big part of it is staying in contact with other recovering alcoholics. Like I said in the beginning, I think kind of, sharing our stories or, or even situations like this, it's like we're at a virtual kitchen table, you know, just laying down my truth and being um, able to witness other people do the same and sharing that me too, like you're talking about, um, is really critical to my daily practice of recovery. And it's not that we always talk about drinking too, you know, it's also we talk about living and how to live life, a sober life and everything that happens in life, which is everything. Um, So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of mutual support is a big part of my, of my, my recovery every day. Um, Another piece, and I talked about this on the last time I was on the show is gratitude. I would say that's kind of a foundational piece. Um, I learned that in recovery. I learned how to be grateful for my life and recovery. I, I took it all very much for granted before You know, and sure, I was grateful that I wasn't, you know, whatever, homeless under a bridge or something like that. But I, I have learned how to cultivate an attitude of gratitude in my, in my daily life and recovery. And I'm a part of a, a gratitude um, email list community, and you know, I post to that every day um, as, as a, as a practice every morning when I wake up. And, you know, at the root of that, uh, the other thing that's grown in me is, is spirituality. Um, you know, getting sober has delivered me to to spirituality. And I did, you know, I did have a kind of vague sense of spirituality before, nothing very concrete. I didn't really grow up with it. I, I pretty much identified as an atheist. Um, I was very... Um, very turned off by the God word, um, and I know a lot of people in in recovery. You know that's they they um, spirituality is very important to them, and you know that was kind of a uh, an uncomfortable thing for me in the beginning. But what honestly what happened is that you know facing life sober and hitting what I call bottoms in sobriety, you know emotional bottoms in sobriety it became, mm. it, it, it made me just a little bit willing to investigate what are these spiritual people talking about? <laughs> what, what is it that they're, you know, what are they talking about when they say God? Um, you know, and I, I became just a little bit willing kind of one day at a time to start to uh, look at that. And, and that's been huge for me in recovery. I mean, that has, Spirituality, you know, and my growing sense of spirituality and my spiritual connection in the world, has been what has taken the place uh, that my my drinking and partying, you know, had in my life to replace it. So, and so it's a it's a developing story too, with that
0: as well. Um, I love that you Amanda, started Amanda. with that. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think it's interesting. Well, it's a good point. Like you said, spirituality has replaced that in your life. Um, and, and I just want to note that you're saying spirituality, not religion, because I think that that is what really throws people off, too. And, you know, for some people it is religion. You know, it could be that you're going to church, but you're not saying, oh, you know, instead of going partying, I go to, like, this 24-hour church, like, all the time. You're, you're talking about spirituality. no, <laughs> you yeah, know, no, people, no, I'm, no, no. no. No, I'm saying Not that for some listeners might <laughs> really understand what you're saying, but like you know, just having and and it's something I I I really can relate to that a lot. It was something you know, people said, "Oh well, you know, you you have to get spiritual." I'm like, "What are you talking about? Like, get away from me, <laughs> you weirdo!" You know, you and know, that's, all that's, all that's is, how it coming. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly, I mean, I mean, all it is really for me is that um, you know, sobriety. Right. Delivered me to an openness of a, a whole great big world outside of me. Before I, when I was drinking, and my even you know drunk or not drunk in in those days, my attitude and the way that I looked at the world was very much, um, you know, centered in myself and me, 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 and um, and I think what all what I'm talking about is that I kind of joined. Um, joins the human race really and that it kind of is my spirituality. I've heard it said, yeah. you know, uh, we belong to each other. I feel like that's that's what sobriety has given me. It's given me back to to my humanity and to my fellow humans and I don't have to be better than them or I don't have to measure myself against them. It's more of a what can what can I contribute to this day? Mhm. Yeah, and, you know, I I feel like
1: for me, my I love how you put that, this perspective of a world beyond me. That also relieves me of the need to control everything. So we talked about that, and for me, you know, control was kind of this false way of trying to create a sense of safety in the world, and somebody mentioned how exhausting that is. Um, and so now and I'm not trying to control everything and I'm part of the web of humanity and I'm feeling connected, that makes me feel so much safer. That connection with other people makes me feel so much safer in the world than my urgent efforts to control everything ever
2: ever could yeah. or did. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I know, would strongly encourage... Inc- Go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say that, and, you know, just t- sharing our stories like this is kind of at the root of that. You know, it's like imagine a world where our stories really matter, you know, because they help other people and ourselves heal and understand and grow closer. Um, that's the world that sobriety's given to me. And it was right here all along, right, that I just was, mm-hmm. you know, there was like a veil the veil of alcoholism.
1: Absolutely.
2: And I I want to encourage
1: people to go back and listen to the gratitude episode if, if they haven't already or if they haven't in a while, um, because I think you said on that show, Joe, how gratitude is, I forget how you put it, but it was a really – Essential element, like it was almost taking your medicine for yeah. the disease of alcoholism. Was like the antidote to the alcoholic thinking. Was gratitude. And it, it, you you put you phrased it really nicely, and it really put this very um, strong emphasis on how powerful it really is. So that's that's a show that I would encourage people to go back and check
2: out. Yeah, thanks. It's it's been essential. It's still it's still still working for me. <laughs> All these months later since that show. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so we
1: were actually um very conversational tonight, ladies. So we've we've come up, we're we're bumping up against the hour. I think we kinda had the idea of maybe having a discussion um topic. So uh, you know, I don't want to kind of go over over time, but if, if there's maybe we can do a little speed round. Is there is there something tonight as a key takeaway or a key topic, Joe, that you want to introduce and everybody can sort of comment
2: on? Um, you know, I guess maybe that back to that topic of honesty and truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I shared some I shared some some truths tonight and some honesty with the goal of supporting my own recovery but also, you know, maybe reaching someone else as well. So if if there were a topic I'd like to hear about or talk about, maybe that a little
1: more on that. Yeah, that's a great one. Um Jean, why don't you why don't you start? Um
3: well oh, I I made a lot of notes actually as Joe was talking and there's lots about just, your practicality, though, I, 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 every time I hear you speak or, or see your writings, I really am just, I love your frankness and practicality because it's so simple. Just be honest. <laughs> That's the key to sobriety. And I didn't think I was a dishonest person, but I hid so much stuff inside me. Anything that hurt me, um, I just, or anything I was ashamed of, I hid it. And I didn't think of that as being dishonest um, because I felt like, well, who am I going to tell, you know? But get, getting into recovery for me has getting honest with myself. And when I was actually willing to sit and look at the things that I wasn't proud of um, or that I just didn't want to acknowledge because they hurt me or they were, didn't reflect on who I wished I was, I really realized those were hurting myself and really hurting my sobriety. And so, um, you know, as you say, you talked tonight about some things that, you know, are are hard to share and are hard to be honest about, but it is important because it helps you and it helps other people. And and, um, it's a big lesson for me to learn, have learned, and it's one I will actively have to continue to work on because my instinct is to sweep away the ugly stuff and make everything pretty and perfect. And, and yeah. that kept me sick for a long, long time. So it's a great relief. It's a great relief to um, let things not be perfect or to just acknowledge, like, stuff happened. Stuff happened, and I didn't like it, and I'm not proud, or I'm not. But you know what? It really did happen. And now it's over, and now I can choose, you know, differently. And yeah. um, it's, so, it just, it's so freeing and... And it, it actually loosens my feeling of needing to control everything because I'm not terrified of all the secrets getting out or of all the you know what if things don't mm-hmm. go the way I'm trying to you know it's like hurting cats really um, right. and it's, it's just <laughs> containing lies is like hurting cats so it's it's nice to just be free of that so I thank you for your for your sharing and your honesty Joe and you you serve as a great example that I really appreciate.
2: Oh, thanks. Thanks so
1: much.
0: I I love that. Amanda, how about you? Oh, oh, oh boy, tons. I love the whole honesty thing. And I love that, you know, just, you know, being in recovery, um, you know, when you go to recovery meetings and stuff, you know, people are just honest. And, um, and I never thought of my I always thought I was a very honest person too but and and I think I was most for the most part with other people, but it was with myself that um you know just like Jane was saying too, like the biggest thing was getting honest with myself and that huge relief that joe described that you described about you know when I first said I was an alcoholic that was a huge relief and then and I think I learned right from there that you know. By um you know just speaking the truth about how I was feeling what I was going through it um it let it go, it let me let go of it, and um and you know, and we you know we learned that in recovery that it is you are being of service and helping other people by sharing your story, which is you know what we do in recovery meetings, what we do here on the bubble hour, and um it's it's um it's so nice to let those things out and not um you don't have to worry about what you said or did um you can i think if you're honest you know you can um and you said this too Joe you can get down to the business of take you know fixing things or taking care of things or doing something about things when you're honest about what's going on and you know and it would be um wonderful if the whole world was like that and i think you know sometimes when we have to deal with, you know, people who aren't in recovery, it can be really frustrating because, you know, I don't know if you've ever sat there, um, you know, with someone and just say, like, you know, why can't you just be honest about this? Like, we could we could solve this problem. You know, it could be at work. Like, if you could just be honest about this, you know, we could, yeah. we could move on. But, um, <laughs> but to, you know, it's, People are fundamentally incapable. Sometimes it's it's really it's um it's it's really funny. After being in recovery for a little while, you you, you just you kind of get accustomed to the honesty. And um, one other thing you said, and it, it kind of ties to honesty, is when um, I love that when you have something going on in your life, you know, good or bad or indifferent, whatever it is, you can you can. Um, or actually I guess when something you have something that's troubling you and you need help with, you can go to a recovery meeting and share about it and get like, you know, ten to twenty people to give you advice on what to right. do about it. And um so you know, here you are, you're going there like bearing your soul about something that you know, you know, prior to getting sober, I probably never would have shared with anyone I would be like, Okay, well this is you know, this is going on and I'm gonna fix this myself. Now you know if I have a problem, I go, I go and I share about it, and I get like twenty people's advice, and there's no shame in it. Like I, I'm, you're, you know, you're just completely honest about it, and it's it's freeing. It's freedom. Honesty is freedom. You don't have to worry about what you said, and you, know, you can usually get some help along the way too. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, I totally. You know, it's funny because of course. Honesty was never my MO either. I didn't identify as a dishonest person or a pathological liar or anything like that. But like Jean was saying, I definitely withheld the truth a lot of the time. You know, because a a lot of what was underneath that, I think, was, you know, feeling like I needed to be perfect or that people wouldn't Mm -hmm. accept me People wouldn't accept me as I am, and that in order to get the love and the the intimacy and the closeness and the friendships and the relationships that I had to present a certain version of myself. And what I found out getting sober is that it's just the opposite, like that it's completely mm-hmm. okay to be imperfect. It's, it's completely okay to be vulnerable um, and that people love me anyway, that I'm not this like, perfect, put-together person. People, people love me even more. Like, it's increased
0: the intimacy
2: and the being honest. It became all of these you know, dark places in myself and things that I had previously been ashamed of became the very things that helped me connect with other people. Uh, So true. You know, it was the, the, the those those parts of myself became the things that helped me reach across those barriers between me and other people and just get really real. And that's that's how I was helped to get sober. And that's how I help other people. You know, there's not just no more space in my life for that other way, that lying way, that trying to control and make it perfect way. There's just it doesn't. It's 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 played its course in my life, you know. At least I I hope so, <laughs> you know, because I'm getting so many more rewards now uh, from from this new way of being mm-hmm. o- open and honest. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean,
1: this is Catherine. I I know that the what I've realized is that the only time I suffer is when I reject reality or when I try to ignore it or I'm inauthentic. When I fight reality, that's when I suffer. And just getting honest is it's, it's putting down the, the sword and the shield and just saying, okay, I'm going to deal with life as it's coming at me. And then that's how we cut through excuses, right? We don't have those anymore once we get honest. Um, And then I just, I'm really moved by what you're saying about, you know, creating connections because my insistence on what a friend of mine in recovery says are the two biggest lies. He says there, I'm okay and everything's fine. And I had a deep, deep deep commitment to maintaining those lies. I mean, I was going to go to any length, and what, that did is that it put this weird control over all of my relationships and made me totally emotionally unavailable at the same time um, so getting honest really does create that you know emotional connection and intimacy that we're probably craving all along anyway um, so that's really that's powerful so as we close out the hour can I
0: please yeah can I oh, read something just, um, I, 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 this is from, you know, my favorite book, The Language of Letting Go, but I actually, I posted this on my Facebook page today, and as you guys were talking, I'm like, God, this is, like, perfect for this topic, and it's just, um, so it's just today's reading, in the to- and the subject is directness, and it says, We feel safe around direct, honest people. They speak their minds, and we know where we stand with them. Indirect people who are afraid to say who they are, what they want, and what they're feeling cannot be trusted. They will somehow act out their truth, even though they do not speak it, and it may catch everyone by surprise. Directness saves time and energy. It removes us as victims. It dispenses with it dispenses with martyrdom and games. It helps us own our power. It creates respectful relationships. It feels safe to be around direct, honest people. Be one. So I thought that
1: was cool. Whoa. I kind of feel yeah, like we could wow. do a whole episode based on that reading. <laughs> Yeah. It's a great idea. <laughs> That's amazing. So well listen, Joe, just thank you so much for being here and for your willingness to share your story and to be so honest. I I know that you've really, really helped me tonight and Amanda and Jean as always, your your input as well. It's just a great inspiration to me. So thank thank you
2: all. Thank you. everybody. Thank you for what you guys do and what you know. This is a great service show, and thank you so much for the time that you take to do this.
3: Oh, we love it's it. Very,
2: well,
1: we love it, and you know, as as we close the show tonight, thank you to you, our listeners, and please do let us know your thoughts on this format. You can um, shoot us an email or a comment at our website. And as always, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and links to some other initiatives around recovery advocacy. And if you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from the website, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you all have a great evening. Thank you,
2: ladies. Thank, thank, you. Catherine. thank you, thank you,
0: good night, night. night. everybody. <laughs> good
2: night. Thank you. Bye bye. Good Good night. Good night.